Since this is your first time working in television, they've asked me to stay with you and help you over some of the rough spots. Like showing up? That's one. Another is not passing out. An honest one. Club, Mr. Certainly. It's been a year and a half. Surely they'd repair the wall and the bandstand by now. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and I have made him watch another movie. Huzzah! This is one I'd never heard of before. I never heard of it? Never heard of it. Wow. This one was completely out of nowhere for me. I've said before, those are the most fun, so I'm glad to hear that, but I'm surprised that I haven't jabbered about it in the past. I'm surprised I never ran into it because it's a format that, it's a type of movie that I've seen plenty others of, and it's kind of a story that feels like I've seen it before, just not in this one. It is a, we've, we've talked about some other m- more, m- I'm going to say modern, but this is from 1982. It's, it's not exactly super current, but we have watched a few other things that were about media from a prior time. Like when we watched the, the special about the making of the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast, and half of the fun was seeing them recreate the process of putting on live radio. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you've got media about the production of media. And this one is set in 1954 in the heyday of live television comedy. Oh, goodness. This, which is, is a fertile ground for story. And I'm fascinated because it immediately made me think of dozens of other things set in similar or set in set in similar times or similar environments. But my favorite year was a specific version of that. And this was a movie that, at the time, it had a really big impact on me. I really liked this movie a lot, and I'll talk later about some of the ways that it, uh, it had an influence. But Was this something you saw in a theater, or was this another TV screening no. at a random time? I saw this on HBO, maybe six or eight months after it came out. Okay, And then I saw it several times because it was on HBO, and the first time I saw it, I, I fell in love with it. That's so fascinating that the repetition available of certain movies means that the theater experience can have a major impact in one sense, but that home video experience can have this repeated and in some ways reinforcing experience in another for your history on media. That's true, and there are differences between the home media experience of something that showed up on HBO, it's going to be repeated a lot, but only for a certain amount of time, versus something where I went out and bought the VHS. And once I had it, I could watch it forever if I wanted to. Exactly. And this is a story in which people who have watched certain films multiple times is an important plot point to some extent. Yes, very much. So it's interesting to look at your own repetition when it comes to repetition of this. Yeah, it is kind of meta in that way for us, because it's about a young man, in part, about a young man who is so influenced by certain movies that he saw when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And the person playing that young man is Mark Lynn Baker, who's probably better known to most people for the sitcom Perfect Strangers. Oh, which ran for, for a long time, was very successful. It was him and Bronson Pinchot in the leads. I don't know that I ever saw an episode of that. So to me, Mark Lynn Baker is the guy who plays Benji Stone in My Favorite Year. Okay, yeah, I'd never even heard of that show, so <laughs> he didn't even have that reference to me yet. Do you know him from anything else? He's been, he's one of those actors where later in his career, and he's still doing some stuff, it seems, he will be in an episode of things. So I've seen him as an actor in an episode of this and an episode of that. And, you know, one of the people in this crime drama and one person in the background as a witness in this other crime drama. And I watch a lot of crime dramas sometimes. That's kind of where I know him from. And playing opposite 
Mark Lynn Baker is Peter O'Toole. That's a name I'd heard before. Now, I don't know if we have, I, I, it's, it's harder to keep track when we're now over 125 episodes, but I don't know if I've shown you any Peter O'Toole movies or that we've discussed any of those for the podcast. I don't think we have for the podcast. He, he ran in just a different string of films than the ones you've shown me yet, although I know him popping up in later things designed for kids. So I know him as the voice of Anton Ego in Ratatouille and being the king in the movie Stardust and things like that. So I recognize him, but I recognize him already as this established big name pull and not during kind of his heyday in that sense. That's a great point. He did have one of those kind of later acts of his career where he was the the elder statesman of the craft, and just could take whatever he was going to have fun doing. And that's the impression I got with a lot of those roles you just listed. And one of these days on the podcast, we're going to get around to things like Lawrence of Arabia and the things that made him the, the movie star matinee idol that he was uh, at the, the real height of his career. And I find it fascinating because I know him from this later portion of his career and he is in this movie playing alan swan an actor who is in the later part of his career doing appearances somewhere else after he's already had his grand fame and success in his previous film ventures so his his role in this is kind of more what i know him without some of the sad unfortunate parts of his character i instead know him as the successful counterpart so here he is, Peter O'Toole in 1982, a, a very popular and famous actor past his heyday as a, an action and romance star, playing in a story set in 1954, a, a movie star who is past his heyday as an action and romance star. And... There's no two ways about it. He's essentially playing Errol Flynn. Oh, yes. Someone who was the epitome of the swashbuckling action-adventure star, who also off-screen had every single gossip columnist and movie magazine buzzing with all of his involvements with starlets and, and others and all of his romantic and other intrigues. This is this is essentially who Alan Swan is representing in this 1954 story. The names even have the same cadence. Errol Flynn, Alan Swan, they like it feels so spot on. Right. The name is it almost sounds as graceful as this performer appeared in these swashbuckling scenes that he's best known for. And we get to see some of those created with uh, Peter O'Toole. That's an amazing thing. I always love it when I love it when media realizes that in order to depict the world, the world needs media. Give your main character a favorite book. Show a movie that is only inside the world of your movie in your movie. Do something. It does so much world building to imply that your world builds worlds. That's a great way to put it. it Hurts my head a little bit if I think about it too hard. I smell toast, but it's happy toast. <laughs> it's absolutely correct. And, well, I guess H.P. Lovecraft did that with the Necronomicon, but that's a different kind of thing. In this instance, it's... <laughs> pull out of nowhere, but good, yes, accurate. If this is a story about the movie star Alan Swan, there have got to be movies that he starred in. Exactly. And we get some terrific titles, The Captain from Tortuga. Yes. And which, I don't even remember all of them. I, I don't either. They're, they, they have a wonderful oh. list. They've got an entire credits list. Yeah, Swords of Glory, I think, yes. was another. They've built this whole body of work for Alan Swan. And Benji Stone is a, like, the junior comedy writer on a TV show. But he's also the world's biggest Alan Swan fan. There's, it's so fitting that the first time we see this main character, he is carrying around a cardboard cutout of the other protagonist of the story. 
<laughs> which is it's like right there you've got a small microcosm of the first first third first half of the story he's going to go through is him carrying around this cut out cut out and it ne- being a little awkward to get through all the doors and everything <laughs> i would go so far as to say there is a, a metaphor there in that Everybody has an image of Alan Swan. Everybody who knows anything about Western media in 1954 in this story has heard of Alan Swan, has seen some of his movies. They have what they understand as a knowledge of Alan Swan, but it is completely two-dimensional. They don't really know him. They know the equivalent of a cardboard cutout. And to some extent, that even includes a huge fan like Benji. And... Benji doesn't start out just as a wide-eyed, eager character. He starts out as kind of a not his best guy. He's not a great guy at the start. He's got problems. He's like somebody who is trying to suppress what a decent person he can be. Because he thinks that he should be some different way. Yeah. He's trying to act kind of worse than he is. And the setting for most of this is he's the... the show that he writes for, it barely gets a chance to write for, is the King Kaiser Comedy Cavalcade, which has Joseph Bologna playing a very Sid Caesar kind of character, a comedian who is the head of this weekly comedy anthology series, like Sid, Sid Caesar is uh, your show of shows. Mm-hmm. And they have recurring sketches and, and bits. And they have guest stars sometimes, and Alan Swan is going to be the guest star for this week's King Kaiser Comedy Cavalcade show. But Alan Swan already has a reputation, and he immediately falls into it by arriving so drunk it's ridiculous. Yes. He, he can barely stand, and yet, and this is where Peter O'Toole plays this so well. He's falling down drunk, but he's weirdly graceful about it. It's kind of drunken mastery. And he's still debonair while he's saying things that don't make a lot of sense. Somehow it still sounds witty and suave. (laughs) If I was blastered, could I do this? Does a backflip successfully and immediately falls asleep on the table he landed on. (laughs) There's like being able to play drunk. One thing. Being able to physical comedy, another. Being able to play drunk physical comedy with absolute perfect story pacing, (laughs) very good. And it also makes sense in the context of the story, because he is somebody who has internalized the kind of role he played over and over, that he still had that sense of style, he still had that physical grace, even though he's getting on in years. So it's weirdly believable that, yeah, This is the kind of person that an Alan Swan could turn into, and yet this is not the kind of reliability that a show like King Kaiser's TV show needs, so they're going to fire him, and Benji sticks up for him. Essentially, he's saying, okay, you want us to keep this guy? He's your responsibility. You've got to make sure that he shows up to every rehearsal and to show night ready and sober, or it's your job on the line. So that sets up what the structure of this is. You've, the the kid who's the the young man who's the super fan now has to be the minder for his idol and has to keep him in line. But I wanted to set that up because it's important to what you started getting at earlier, which is the kind of person Benji is at the beginning. And they show the environment he's in to start out very clearly. This is a a story set at Thirty Rockefeller. This is a story in that kind of office environment of the time. And just like shows like 30 Rock or Studio 60 and such, it is full of people trying to show the business of building comedy. But it also shows a lot of environments and situations where he has some odd and not great examples of what of how to be a, per- a good person in the environment or how to be a person. His, right. his mentors are not leading him great at all times there. That is true, and the, the examples that he has aren't great. And he is, has a crush on Casey, who is the, uh, the assistant to the producer on the show. But his way of 
expressing that and his way of trying to get some interest out of her is just to be pushy and crude. She says at one point he's like a mosquito. And it's like he's taken all the wrong lessons about what he's supposed to be and used that to suppress what he really could be, what, what, where his instincts might really lead him. We get to see the head of set. We get to see the head writer. We get to see, uh, you know, Mr. King Kaiser himself there. And you kind of see, like, pieces of all the worst of their personalities being part of this facade that Stone is now trying to present, thinking that's how to be a successful guy and get the girl. And KC is played by Jessica Harper, who I think does very well with a kind of thankless role. She isn't given a lot to do except to be the object of his interest. And yet she gets some good lines and she really uses those to turn this into a character that we can see there's more, a little more depth to, the, to it than the script is necessarily setting her up for. Oh, yeah. And she also plays the pivotal role of she is the person who starts to notice when Benji starts to become both the better and kinder person that he can be, but also to have a little more confidence. Because I think the reason he acted like such a jerk early on was that he lacked confidence in who he really was, and he thought, this is what I should do, because I certainly couldn't succeed if I just tried to be myself. I mean, the name he's using as a writer isn't even his real name there, which is an important part of this. Yes, and his mom wants to know, when am I going to see the name Benji Steinberg? Benjamin who is, Steinberg. Who is yeah. ben, you know, Benjamin Steinberg? Who's this Benji Stone I keep seeing on the screen? Mm-hmm. And that's another example of him like not being who he really is. Although there is a great scene between Benji and, and Swan about the fact that Swan changed his name. He wasn't born Alan Swan, of course, and that's just part of this business is... And one of the risks of this business is to become who you need to be for the business and then begin to forget who you really are. There's this difference between taking that name and using it with confidence and hiding behind that. And that's something that they both they figure out. But at the start, he's kind of trying to play a character on top of himself. And that gets peeled away over the course of seeing this idol of his have all of these problems and failings and issues and human nature aspects that remove some of the shine and polish off of what was previously an idol of his. Right. He gets to see that being Alan Swan isn't the dream that he imagines it must be. Being able to be in these movies, being known by everyone, having thousands or millions of fans who've never met you, love you. It's it's a weird and challenging life that Alan Swan has has led, and it's not even as if it's all been in, in exchange for wealth. We learn that the reason he's doing this TV show is that if he does not do this TV show and give half the money to the IRS, they're going to deport him back to England. Mm-hmm. So he is in desperate straits financially. So he didn't even get that in this trade off to become Alan Swan, and yet. It's not like he doesn't enjoy a lot of what it means to be Alan Swan. He's either having a good time or putting on a good front of having a good time a lot of the time. And as we see, he, we learn how much trouble he has, but we get to see in the hijinks that they, in, they get up to. And you know there's going to be hijinks. There is crazy things at dinner parties. There's stunts on rooftops and such. We see that he lo- that. Swan loves the swashbuckling adventureness of the characters he plays. He likes being the, the clever and swift guy in the room, <laughs> in some ways more than the wealth and the fanciness of it. Yes. He kind of likes the adventure part more than the, the, the shiny and, and expensive things. And that's a fascinating point because... It tells you what drew him to being the kind of star he is, was the kind of star, not the stardom. It's a certain kind of freedom that he has yearned for, and it's one of the things that he enjoys about this life that he has. People like me were targets. I'm blamed for a lot of things I had absolutely nothing to do with. On the other hand, because of who I am, 
I get away with murder in other areas. I suppose it all balances out in the end. And the way they, they portray Alan Swan interacting with people is fascinating to watch. And really, you, you needed an actor as, uh, as capable as Peter O'Toole to do this because part of his magnetism is the way he can totally focus on whoever he is with. If he is talking to somebody, if he is dancing with someone, and we see all of these, it's as if he makes them think there is no one else in the room. You have absolutely every little bit of Alan Swan's attention. He's looking you in the eye. He's paying attention. He's listening. A second and a half later, he might be engaging with someone else in the same way. But that is part of this, this ability and this magnetism. And it's one of those things that Benji couldn't see and learn by watching him on a, in a movie. In terms of that focus, Benji is shown to be a person who can think some broader pictures. We see that he does have comedic chops as we get to know him better. We get to see the fact that he is, he's memorized lines from movies. He understands what made them. He's skilled at what he's chosen as prof- his profession. He just needs to work on the confidence to use those skills. And it makes an immediate form of trust between them. Because Benji was able to look at the bigger picture as to the career of this actor and make that a case for why we should keep Swan on. And that get, got him the position of having to be hit the minder of this liability of an actor they're dealing with. But it immediately in, meant that Swan saw something in, in Benji and trusted him. And that trust comes back and forth where they work together on things where Swan will ask for something kind of ridiculous sounding and Benjamin Stone will fit. Benji Stone will figure out a way to do it. Trusting this will work out, but also trying to have some control of the situation so it doesn't get out of hand and go too far. Yeah, he definitely saw a certain kind of courage and loyalty in Benji that he saw him as a worthy mentee because Benji was so interested. And another character who's very important to helping us understand Alan Swan is his driver. Yes. This guy who, he's a limo driver, he works for a lot of people in New York, but whenever Alan Swan's in town, he drops everything else, and he's Alan Swan's guy for as long as he needs to be. And he is a very down-to-earth, very honest direct guy you always get the the sense that he's he's being straight with with whoever he's talking to and he sees all the problems with alan swan and the way he is now and yet still has some loyalty to him still thinks he is worth looking after and taking care of and yet even he has a breaking point at some point later on in the story exactly and all of this story of the two of them kind of learning more and figuring more is interwoven with another story about the production as a whole. And that, oh, yes. is, that is about uh, King versus Carl Rojek. Yes. Boss Rojek, who is a mobster and who has more than a passing similarity to a recurring sketch character played by King Kaiser, Boss Hijack. <laughs> And he makes this, they've got this character who keeps showing up, and he's obviously a, a slapstick parody of this distinguished businessman and labor leader, Carl Rojek, who is clearly you know, a mob leader. Exactly. And Rojek doesn't like this. And the fight between them... We see this the meeting where the 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 legal and the extra legal threats of <laughs> stopping the show start up, and King's response is to double down and refuse. And we definitely get the the image of King as he is a kind of a tough working class guy who happened to be really funny, and that got him to this point where he gets his name uh, to host a. Uh, a network television show, but he's still that scrapping working class guy who's never going to back down from a fight. 
which makes his relationship with his writers and the rest of his crew difficult sometimes. But he's also loyal to them, and he he tries to treat them right when he remembers to. Yeah. But that running conflict between King Kaiser and Karl Rojek is, it has some really funny scenes connected to it, but it also is an important plot thread through the entire story. Sorry, I just need to make a side note here. I knew I recognized the actor who played Karl Rojek from somewhere. Yeah. I had not realized he plays the ship's captain in the movie Space Mutiny, made famous by Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> That's where I recognized that chin from. Sorry, I'm having a moment there. So does Boss Rojek hire people to kill others with forklifts? I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. But he definitely does hire people to kill people in this film. Yeah, while... All of these problems with Alan Swan and is he going to make it? Is he not? Is he going to stay sober? Is he going to be able to do the show? While all that's going on, we keep coming back to instances of apparent sabotage uh, of the, the show where there are truckers who won't deliver sets. There's lighting that mysteriously falls in places that came, come very close to doing someone lethal harm. Now, there's obviously, you know, Carl Rojek is not going to take no for an answer when he comes in and says, you got to cancel this sketch. So we've got kind of this increasingly dangerous environment and these two characters learning more and becoming closer friends, but also kind of finding each other's problems and flaws and trying to help. Yeah, we, we see Alan Swan helping guide benji stone through certain things that he really needs to grow up about but we also see alan swan having someone to talk to about some things that he probably hasn't talked to anybody about in a long time if ever just because he has this sense that benji's going to understand given the business benji wants to be in given the issues benji has about to what extent do i have to be what people want me to be to what extent do I need the courage to be myself? And in some ways, Swan is like acknowledging to Benji, yeah, it's part of the job is to change who you are in some ways. But it also seems to me like he's warning Benji, not let it, don't let it get too far like the way it did with me. Right. And over that course, Benjamin Steinberg here learns to, he, he thought he was going to learn how to be the suave Devonair guy to some extent from this idol of his. And that would help him succeed in these things he's failing at. And instead, he learns to be himself when and how he needs to be, and to rely on his own skill and ability. And the rest can come to him in a way that is his. Be the better you, don't be a better someone else. And in doing so, Benji starts to see how much Swan has ignored parts of his life and never taken the lessons of the characters he played about how to be noble and responsible in that sense. Right. Swan to, has regrets that he could do something about, but he lacks the courage to. Right. So it's like, like I tried to be courageous and I had, bad I had a bad aim at how to do so. You've taught me how to be a courageous version of myself. You had all of the these other elements to it, but you need to learn the opposite part. So they kind of help each other re-guide their, their own stories. And central to that is what I think is one of the, it's one of the hardest to watch scenes, or at least it was the first time I saw this. And yet I recognize that it's a pivotal scene. And that is when Island Swan goes to Brooklyn with Benji to visit and have dinner with Benji's mom, and it turns out his uncle and, and aunt and, and his mom's new husband, who's a Filipino bantamweight boxer, and they have these conversations, and it's really Benji's mom's conversations about the importance of family that really become such a pivot and really bring home or really bring out in Swan some of the things that he regrets. The fame and the and the the glitz and glamour of it was never the thing that drew him to filmmaking to begin with. So why is he now stuck there alone? 
Right. When he could be a little, have some of the family that he's, he's got a daughter who he loves, but he never talks to. Do something. He just doesn't have the courage. He doesn't reach out. He doesn't have the courage in the way he needs to reach out and do something there. And that's kind of what he learns. It's like, oh, there is this. I don't have to go home to the empty, lavish hotel room. It's kind of a thing that hadn't ever completely settled in. Or at very least, that Swan never let himself think he deserved. And now he's changing his thoughts on that. And these different plot lines come together in really fun and exciting ways. Because, of course, there's a lot of last-minute stuff about Will... Alan Swan actually get to the studio on time and ready to do this live TV broadcast. There's the fact that Boss Rojack's men try to disrupt the live broadcast when uh, when they when Kaiser refuses to get rid of the sketch. And it ends in this big wild action scene in which people have people wind up making decisions that are so important and we get to see how much have they really learned uh, of what they have been learning all along? How much of the have they internalized to make the right decisions when it counts? And all of this comes together. And even, even the elements we've seen of the fact that this is television production and that industry aspect that's been kind of this setting and this backdrop for these stories has a very fun, I think, culmination in a little a little moment that ties in and this is small spoilers to a, a moment later but the realization right before the episode goes live as to exactly what the TV show is and swan who's so comfortable in front of a camera being this suave debonair character suddenly having terrible stage fright when he realizes this is a performance in front of a live studio audience and the cameras broadcast live to all these people's TVs at home. And that element breaks him for a moment. He was not prepared for it. All the production stuff we've seen in the background has kept that as a constant for us, the audience. But this character who were told so many times this professional in the industry and everything else being so scared and not being prepared for what this type of production is, is such a fascinating little moment because it, it depicts something different about the, <laughs> the film versus TV elements. And it turns, it turns what has been all this setting into a, a an impactful element that I didn't expect it to, to have. And we've talked about enough of this. I think we can talk about this one line that encapsulates so much of that is when he is panicking and telling people why he could not possibly do this insane thing of performing in front of a camera while it immediately goes out into people's homes. I'm not an actor. I'm a movie star. Yes. And that summarizes the difference. And it's easy to look at that and say, well, he's not a real actor. He's just a movie star. He's he he's he's not authentic enough to be an actor and yet the more i think about that line he's just being very honest about those are different crafts being a movie star is a craft and he is incredibly good at that craft and being a movie star involves knowing how to perform on a set on a sound stage in front of cameras and maybe do several takes while you're getting input from directors and knowing how to look exactly right in a close-up, as well as do the big action scenes. He is good at being a movie star. Memorizing lines because you only get one take. He talked about how terrible he was on stage. He couldn't possibly do this live TV. It's just a different craft. And he's shocked that other people in media don't recognize that they are different and they hired him for the wrong thing. Yeah, there's just this one moment where you watch him. Benji walks with, they've dealt with some stuff. He's walking alongside him and he talks casually about this. 
there's this moment where Pierre O'Toole just perfectly face acted, turning to look at him with this wide-eyed bewilderment, like, like I've been giving you suggestions and tips on how to be a professional competition chef and make one perfect dish all this time, and I'm just now realizing you're a line cook that makes things every single day of the week at scale I've never <laughs> dared. There's just this like sudden shock of the difference there and this this like terror, but this also impressed wonder at this other person he's gotten to know for just this moment before it comes crashing down on him. And he'd walked in kind of putting on the debonair character and also half the time being very drunk to all these other people. And suddenly there's this manic energy of like, I'm tiny amongst giants. What in the world? (laughs) And it's like, it's not belittling his station. It's separating them as so different skill sets as you're describing there. But there's this, there's this respect in that separation that's interesting. I never really took it that way, but I can now, now that you describe that, I can see it's it's horror, but it's also a wonder. That yeah. You people actually do this insane, impossible thing and you do it every week. Yeah. It's like, A, how, and B, what's wrong with you? Yeah. It's like, oh, we do this every week. And there's just this, because oh, oh, uh, it's like doing it once is unbelievable <laughs> to me. And you're here like casually saying, after this one, you'll do it again. That's a great point. I, I hadn't thought about that take, but I like it. And that means that when the final confrontation between the two of them kind of yelling at each other, fix your stuff, <laughs> happens, they're on a bit of a differently even footing than they had been. Yes. They go from mentor to mentee to parallels, and that difference becomes a way for them to acknowledge each other in the way the other one needs right so that it can help both of them and the confidence that swan has helped benji gain is also the confidence to call swan out on his bs exactly and the confidence that you know that swan is trying to learn about being the responsible person is also the exact same thing that he needs to step up and be on stage and take the fact that he doesn't have multiple shots at anything you get one chance. Are you going to do the thing or not? And he does it. And that's kind of what it, he always wanted multiple takes. He can have multiple little one-off moments in high society and try again. There's this entire moment early on where he requests going to a restaurant. And the response is, well, you're sure you want to go back there? It's like, oh yeah, they've probably fixed the balcony by now. <laughs> and that, in the context of him talking about we'll get it on another take, sets so much into perspective where he think where the the society that will just rebuild it and set it up again means he gets to do it over again and again. And there's a there's a safety net there for him. But the rest of life that he never wanted to. He doesn't always have that, and he has to get used to that. And your description there brings me around to mention the fact that this is directed by Richard Benjamin, who is known, I would say probably more people know him as a, a, an actor, usually an actor of things with at least a certain amount of comic elements, as well as a director. But he has always been a, like a comic actor and director with a certain amount of thoughtfulness to what he does. And I did a lot of that kind of thoughtful comedy of the 70s. I wish there were a better term that I could come up with. But this doesn't strike me immediately as, oh, this is a Richard Benjamin movie. But there's something about the way he handles the variety in this. The the quiet, introspective conversations, the funny slapstick action scenes that we get when Alan Swan convinces Benji to buckle some swatches. It it all fits together very well, so it's got that unified take that Richard Benjamin was able to give it. Exactly. So do you think we're, uh, we're ready for our final questions? I think so. Well, I do want to say that if we had the Captain from Tortuga or Swords of Glory or any of the other Alan Swan movies, I think they'd be absolute screens. I, I want to see those. <laughs> I do want to see those. 
somewhere somewhere inside the ver- the world of my favorite year years down the, down the line <laughs> there is a version of each of us doing a podcast about these alan swan <laughs> movies and i'm excited and happy about that fact because their world building did that well enough but for my favorite year uh screen or no screen i think it's screen it reminded me a lot of other movies it reminded me of hail caesar by the cohen oh very much it's a very great call. very much there's some other things just I mentioned it before, things like Studio 6, The On the Sunset Strip, and 30 Rock, where they're about the production. But there's also kind of a lot about the people and the characters. There's a lot about this story that other stories like to tell. The industry likes talking about the industry in some ways, but it's a fine setting, and they can write depth because they know it. And so, if you like any of those, this is an absolute screen. And I think this is just a good example of that kind of film. I agree. I would say it's a screen, too. The only hesitation I have has to do with my reaction to this, having seen it now for the first time in decades, because some things in it are so much more cringy, especially the kind of the kind of guy Benji Stone was trying to be the way he was trying to get Casey's attention at the beginning. It really was just so awful and unnerving and unpleasant to watch. Yeah, that didn't it didn't strike me that way in 1982 I was what 17 and B you saw more of that in movies and things but you do kind of need to start him there so he has someone to become that he has something to get better from this still this movie does a good job of not portraying that as the positive end goal right but it is absolutely valid movies being of their time they will have the mentalities of the time in which they were made this one at least is fighting against that and depicting it as negative but if that is unpleasant that is always a fine reason to forego a film i don't i think that if you can can handle that negative element this is a fine story and movie but definitely good to acknowledge that about not just this but any movie in general right be aware of when and how it was made And that doesn't mean you have to excuse everything, but it means awareness contextualizes for you to be able to learn if you want to learn something from it. Yeah, it just, it's, nobody can watch every movie, so pick ones that you'll enjoy. And if that's something that marks a movie as something you will not enjoy, it's good to be aware of that. Exactly. For me, it's still a screen because it does present that as a, an immature place from which to then grow. Exactly. So, yeah, I would say screen. Uh, as well. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Interesting thing. I've got, I always mention if there's already been examples of this. Yeah. And there is a reboot. There is? Yes. Ten years later, an unsuccessful Broadway musical starring Tim Curry as their version of Swan. I heard that, now that you mention it, it rings a bell. I didn't know that it had been produced or that it was unsuccessful it was, it or was, anything. It was an unsuccessful, according to Wikipedia and other sources, ad- adaptation of this into a musical. I have no further information than that, but I always like to acknowledge if there's been other interpretations, and I didn't expect this to be an episode where we'd have one. I can see this leading people to try to make it into a musical. I can also see that musical not necessarily working. I could probably see it working, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. Hmm. I've got to acknowledge what I think technically, is this a reboot or a revival? Because it has to do with the impact that this had on me and the influence it had on me. Okay. I ran a long-running, episodic tabletop rpg okay that was primarily inspired by this movie and ghostbusters wait what it was with my own rules that were kind of designed to create an adventure matinee type feel in a tabletop role-playing game and what i created was this episodic game it was inspired by Ghostbusters in that the player characters were university professors in a parapsychology department. And the first two uh, players 
were your Uncle Jim and your Aunt Sue. Okay. And Mrs. Darling Wife, your mom, joined as a third uh, player a few episodes in. I've heard stories of this game. And the what really took it from being just this idea to the first actual session we ran was my coming up with what the first episode would be. And it was the ghost of Alan Swan. <laughs> the first thing the university parapsychologists in this RPG had to investigate was an apparent haunting at the Museum of Broadcasting in New York City. I think it's now called the Museum of Radio and Television. But there was something messing with the tape libraries and all these things. And <laughs> it turned out, spoilers for a, an RPG that I ran decades ago, it turned out that the ghost was the ghost of Alan Swan, who was trying to find specific recordings. Because in this continuation of the story of Alan Swan for this uh, RPG, and they, the player characters researched and learned all this, that he had his career and his life kind of turned around. He did get back in touch with his, his daughter, and he appeared several more times as a guest on King Kaiser's comedy Cavalcade. He fell in love and had, a, uh, uh, and had another romance and got married. I think he got married. Now I'm not even remembering, but at, at any point, Essentially, his, his love later in life passed away, and he had kind of been watching over her as a ghost, and she was alive, and suddenly he couldn't find her, and he was panicky, and he went to try to find any way to reconnect with her, and I think she had been in TV shows, so he was looking for things that he might have seen her in, and the PCs had to communicate with the ghost, explain what had happened, that she had passed on and was not sticking around as a ghost. And I'm going into far more detail. I'll probably edit out a lot of this. If you're editing stuff out, I'm going to ask a wild question right now on tape, though. For sure. You. Do you think refreshing your adventure matinee rules and writing down an episode one DM guide or a GM guide for this? would be a fine Patreon bonus. Oh, it might. If I can find if my you, notes for it, If you it can might. find your notes, you might be able to <laughs> clean that up and make that a fun bonus for it. If that would be of interest to you, if you're a patron or considering becoming a patron, let me know if, if that would, uh, would catch your interest. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I never expected that to be the source of this concept. <laughs> so I think that counts as a revival because everything yeah. that happened in the original was continuity and was canon. That is a, that is a headcanon revival in the best way. Yeah. In terms of whether or not this should be any other ways, I kind of... I'm saying rest in peace, but because there's so many other stories that do this kind of thing, I do think there's fun in the revival setting things in a world. The nice thing about anything that does the world building of implying its own media implying its own brands, giving those bits of background life to their world means other things can pay tribute or imply tone by borrowing those and inter interconnecting. I'm kind of thinking of the entire Tommy Westfall universe <laughs> here, but there's, there's a positive to that concept where little things can shorthand multiple things and reward viewers even if they don't impact too much to the story. And so I kind of say the world is fine to, to do, but I'm going to say rest in peace because this is doing a story well, and it's doing a story other stories also do. And I can't see how to do this without changing the when, if you're going to make a new version. But the when is so important to both the culture, the industry, and everything else for what they're doing at that time, that there's some issues, I think. Yeah, I would agree. My my inclination is to say rest in peace. And even when it comes to the world building, one of the things that makes this so naturalistic is that apart from Alan Swan, Alan Swan's movies and the King Kaiser comedy cavalcade TV show, 
really everything else we see is real and was in the real world yeah. in 1954. All the brands we see being advertised uh, on uh, on the TV show, real ads for real brands and real models of cars, and they make it seem so concrete by setting it in the real world of 1954. And again, if you just substitute Errol Flynn for Alan Swan, you get something very, very close to the real world. Exactly. So it, it's kind of the only reason you'd have to do anything with it is if you want to make a subtle nod to this film. And otherwise, it's just kind of our world. Yeah, that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see some totally unrelated thing, but in somebody's DVD, DVD collection yeah. is the Captain from Tortuga yeah. or the Alan Swan swashbuckling yeah. five disc set. Oh, ex exactly. <laughs> you know, just, just to have your main character in your sitcom say, you know, well, what do we want to watch on date night? <laughs> I've got the complete Alan Swan film discography here. I've got this. I've got that. Just you can have a throwaway line and tip your hat to this, and that's that's what that can do. For all I know, they did that on Baker's sitcom Perfect Strangers. If they didn't, someone needs a talking to because that would have been such a great joke. Oh, absolutely. But this was fun. I I I've liked this movie for so long, and yet I hadn't seen it in so long. It was so much fun to to share it with you, especially now that I know you had no knowledge of it. No knowledge. And I'm very glad you, got, you showed it to me, too. You know, it was fun. It, it was a good film. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, and we will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, another podcast. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me at bymatthewporter.com, and that's where you will find links to anything i'm doing online i'm on mastodon i'm also on youtube you'll find a link there where you will find my draft house diary movie theater and food reviews from the alamo draft house and ian where can people find you i can be found at itemcrafting.com or most other places as item crafting such as item crafting live on twitch and item crafting on youtube and you can find the podcast at immproject.com if you want more of the podcast you'll find all of our back episodes there if you want to support the podcast, you'll find our store, and you will find a link to our Patreon, which will not only support the podcast, but also help you get more audio content. And if you want to contact us, you can contact us on our uh, contact page at immproject.com, or you can send us honest-to-goodness, real-life physical mail in the U.S. Postal Service at Intermillennium Media Project, P.O. Box 271167. Littleton, Colorado, 80127. But most important, again, we appreciate your listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>